in our continuation of series, uh, our studies in Gospel of John, where finally get to finish chapter 6. Um, chapter 6 is the longest chapter of John's Gospel, and also this is a turning point of John's um, revelation of Jesus, and including his miracles and including his teaching. And uh, today's message is the fifth message on chapter 6, and an entitled, To Whom Shall We Go? And one of the reasons why today's passage is a, such a turning point is that if you remember five Sundays ago, or more than five Sundays ago, including um, other speakers and uh, Thanksgiving Sunday, the story began in John chapter 6 with the Jesus miracle, feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, so including women and children, at least 10,000. Some scholars typically will say about 20,000 people. And today's passage, as it ends in verse 71, that 5,000 men became mere 12 men. Everyone left except Jesus' 12 disciples. So let's have a quick overview. How did it happen? So that today's passage is sitting in the context of entire chapter. Uh, It starts with the hardest saying of Jesus. To Jesus teaching a uh, sermon ended with some harsh stuff. Uh, not a palatable sermon at all. If you remember, Jesus released, you know, slipped away from the crowd because they wanted to make him political king. So slipping away, walking on the water, and then he went to the other side. Now he's at Capernaum and in a synagogue and the fervent, the most fervent followers chase after disciples and try to find Jesus and they found him. They are in the synagogue. This sermon happened in the synagogue. <clears throat> and Jesus started with just a beautiful words of I am the bread but ended with some of troubled things. And today's passage picks up in verse 60, people saying, isn't this hard saying? Who could could take it? Who could tolerate it, basically? But let's go back. Verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 53 to 58. Just an excerpt of the end of the, of the sermon. 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat 
you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, uh, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the, the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This was really offensive and troublesome. Um, we find out, we'll find out a little more why so in a minute. But because of this, this fervent followers, the bunch of them began to question about whether they could stay around. And then something finally triggered then many disciples turned back, verse 66 says, and basically spiritual defection happened. They deserted Jesus. Starting with the 5,000 men now, it dwindled down to 12 men, but in the middle of it, was Jesus surprised? Or Jesus was kind of perplexed at what's going on? And no, actually Jesus knew. Verse 61, verse 64 says, some of them didn't really believe from the beginning. They, he knew that. So this harsh saying was intentional. We, we sometimes um, talk about a crossway preaching the word of God faithfully without sugarcoating. And Jesus, this is a supreme example of harsh message. This is one of those things that when you hear the message, you're, like, you're troubled by that. And to that, for that reason, let me preface this. I struggled with today's passage because it's it's not easy passage to preach. I have a deep desire to be liked as your pastor and preacher, but today's truth, plainly preached, is troublesome. When you think about the at the end of all this, only 12 disciples are left with Jesus. But in reality, when you think about what Jesus said, one of, one of you are devil. Pointing, basically hinting Judas Iscariot who, was, who will 
eventually betray him. So 5,000 to 11. This is really discouraging. It's this one of those, you know, movies that you start with the very troublesome things and at the end, happy ending. I like those movies. You know, but the, this is one of those movies that ends with everybody left. The question that comes to our mind is how are we going to understand this? There are two ways, basically. Men-centered way is that we take it whatever we want. Let's be positive and believe all that is God can give us. In the middle of it, be positive, be thankful. And I'm not against being thankful and positive. But the reality is deeper. Something deeper that we need to embrace. I'm going to say two themes in this entire chapter. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The question that we're going to ask is that when it will, uh, in light of the fact that there's so many fervent followers of Jesus, quote-unquote disciples. We're not talking about those people who are outskirt people who, are, who were interested and curious, curious about what Jesus was doing with all these miracles. We're not even talking about them. They're kind of filtered out. And then those who are fervent followers came to the synagogue to listen to Jesus again, them leaving, the question is, is that going to happen to me too? What does this passage teach us about following Jesus? Discipleship. True discipleship. If you are deceived by someone, that's a terrible thing. But more terrible thing is when you are deceived by your own self, self-misleading. The superficial discipleship, false discipleship, is worse than unbelief because it will mislead us. So today is the day that the passage is calling us to examine our hearts in a way. The question that I am asking is, what are key lessons that John chapter 6, in light of all this, especially ending, the, ending with that story, what does that tell us, teaches us about following Jesus? I find at least four. Here's the first one. Lesson number one on about following Jesus. Following Jesus without turning over our autonomy, our center, to his lordship will lead us to disillusionment and eventually to spiritual defection. Okay, verse 16. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, 
This is a harsh saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's not that harsh saying was an intellectually difficult message, but hard to tolerate, hard to receive. One of those things that it just bothers you to the core. Why was that? Number one, their confusion and their mis- mistaking literally, even, you know, other Stories tell us that woman at the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus saying, if you drink the water that I give you, she was thinking about physical water. She, Jesus actually meant spiritual water. And then Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus saying about how can I be, in, you know, being an adult, go back to my mother's womb and be born again. Jesus meant spiritual rebirth rather than physical birth. And they they were taking Jesus, taking flesh and drinking uh, his blood literally. Basically take it as a cannibalism. It is true. Because of this teaching and the first century people were accused when... uh, you know, Nero and other uh, persecutors were killing Christians in the name of their own righteousness. One of the accus- accusation was cannibalism, along with uh, incest, because it's brother and sister calling each other and getting married. There's more. If you remember Old Testament law, the one thing that is clear even to this day, Jewish people, Orthodox Jews, cannot even eat meat with the blood at the same time, not to mention drinking blood. That would be absurd. So when Jesus is saying, if you do not feed on my flesh and drink my, unless you drink my blood, there is no life in you. And obviously, centuries after, the Catholic Church took this uh, in a not an offensive way, but a literal way that life actually, actually comes from taking elements of Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. Once again, um, I'm reminding all of us by Jesus saying, feed on my flesh, and looking at the text, Jesus would mention, I am the bread. If you come to me and believe in me. So coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus, and not in a once for, once for all kind of thing, but as if that we need to get strengthened, our body is enlivened because of the food we are taking, our spirit, depends on 
Jesus is our essential daily central strength and food, spiritual food. What's the point? Jesus' teaching was not offensive in a way that Jesus was trying to to offend them for the sake of offense. Jesus was telling the truth as a creator and lord of the universe. His demand is that Jesus would not, should not be prominent, just prominent, very important person in my life, but preeminent in their lives. They had their center. They had their autonomy, meaning that I do what I do. I have my religious life. I have my financial life. I have my intellectual life, family life. I am the center. Autonomous meaning that I am the owner and the, the controller of my entire life. Typically, that's the mentality of 21st century Western people. The problem is, if you're non-Christian, you do that. And when you come to know Christ, you hear the demand. If you cannot, if you do not hate your mother and ma- your father, even yourself, you cannot find disciples. Obviously, hate doesn't mean Jesus said love one another, and, you know, honor your parents. Jesus meant absolute preeminence in every person's life who decides to follow. That's the cost of discipleship. Dear friends, and you're here to follow Jesus, to acknowledge Jesus is my Savior, your Savior as well, but in this Western context, we could do the same thing. I think cultural shift has so much that the offensive language of Jesus is sometimes omitted. And today we cannot get away with it if we are faithful to it. Jesus demands your center. And in a way that same um, simple uh, uh, illustration that could kind of help us to think is if you like to be in control, especially when you're driving, your husband or your wife or your son wants to drive, but you need to be in control. Just tell me where to go. Tell me where to go. Make a right. Tell me early. Don't say why that there. This is autonomous life. I'm in control. I need help. Somebody to guide me. Somebody to be navigator for me. The life that Jesus demands for us as we decide to follow, become follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, then he said, turn over that driver's seat to me. 
Have you done that? If you don't trust that person's driving? I won't say who. One of my sons, whenever he drives, I am just... I, I wish I could have a brake on my side, side as well. I screamed. Stop! So I decided to, Kate, I think you're a better person to teach him. Sometimes we treat Jesus like that. The question that we could ask this morning is, as we follow Christ, is Jesus prominent in my life? Just merely prominent? Or is he preeminent? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached through the Romans and the collection, they put it in a book, his preaching, and then I don't know how many years they, he preached. 14 volumes. So hearing that, I think you should be happy that you know, John's series, Gospel of John series will not be, um, I mean, at least the first half of, of it will be a little more than a year. In John, in, in Romans sermons he preached this with such a relevance and I just remembered when I when I was meditating in this passage and Martin Lloyd-Jones writes it's around 6 chapter 6 or 7 around there the difference therefore between the Christian and the non-Christian is obviously a radical one and not merely something superficial. To become a Christian does not mean that you just modify your former life a little or adjust it slightly or make it look like a little better or brush up, as it were. There are many who conceive of Christianity in those terms. To become a Christian, they think, means in the main that you stop doing certain things and begin to do others. There is slight adjustment in your life, a slight modification. Some things are dropped, others added. There is some improvement. You live a better life than you lived before. All of that, of course, is a quite true but that alone is not Christianity. Whatever our definition of Christianity is, it must include this idea of a death and a new life. Nothing less than that. In my language today, in, in our reflecting today's passage, turning over our autonomous center to God, to Jesus, and receiving his life, exchanging our deadness of our soul to receiving the life that he gives us. There's a second lesson. Second lesson is quite 
troublesome as well. Because when you think about when they finally took off, they were troubled and disillusioned. And at the end of the 65, everybody took off. 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The lesson number two is this. The fallen, in the fallen nature, no one can know or obey God, but the Spirit enables a saving faith in sinners by God's sovereign grace. It's a mouthful. So let's say that one more time. In the fallen human nature, no one can know or obey God, but the Spirit, Holy Spirit enables a saving faith in a sinner by grace, by God's sovereign grace. Because previously Jesus mentioned flesh a lot, you can jump into that, oh, the flesh meaning Jesus' flesh. No, this flesh here refers to not Jesus, but ours. Our sinful human nature. Even with the best effort that you could have, no one can know or obey God. So by this harsh saying, Jesus was intentional to test their faith. The many of those false believers, in our, in our language, false Christians, false disciples, pseudo-disciples, took off. They failed the test. Maybe by God's grace, when you think about some of those people might not have, you know, sticked around and come back. Maybe so, but at that moment, they failed the test. Jesus revealed two important sound doctrines here. This is also troublesome, as I mentioned. The one is a man's total depravity. Total doesn't mean you are depraved as, as, as worst as you can be. Total meaning every direction of your life. Pervasive de depravity. You are unable, unable in every part of your life. So inability to come to God. The second one is irresistible grace. God's effectual calling of sinner by enabling 
a saving faith. Is this biblical, that you ask? Because basically, not only that, those people, when they heard that this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So many of them probably had this Judaism background, wanting to please God with their self-effort. And I think God, Holy Spirit, opening our eyes to, to the glory of the gospel, then seeing this sovereign grace that our salvation is not by works or not by our choices, but by God's sovereign election, predestination of, of our faith, and God actually grants us that faith. Blessed are those, you know, many of you are not troubled by that. But some people go through trouble, very heartening trouble. When you think about this, suddenly, that God's sovereignty comes first. We need to be cautious about that. Remember two themes as God's sovereignty and men's responsibility. God's sovereignty does not eliminate men's responsibility. So it's not like, okay, I don't have to do anything. God choose me, you know, grace me, or even questioning about the other way. Maybe God's not chosen me. I want to really believe, but things are not happening for me. The man's responsibility comes like this. I saw my depravity. And I come and walk through this door of life, Jesus. And all of a sudden, as soon as I walk in, and there's a list of guest names, arrived names, and my name, Paul K. Kim. It's not because of his foreknowledge of it, because his effectual calling. In other words, when he calls that God's grace applied to us, is granted in us, is opening the dead person's eyes to see, to believe. Let's find out whether Scripture supports this. It starts with Romans 3, verse 9 through 12. Apostle Paul expounds on this. Verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better? Any better? Of? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And the question that pops into our, our mind is, what about so-and-so? What about the, my neighbor who is just most generous person? He's not a Christian. We could think about all that. But it, it, it's in a way that when we think about horizontally, like, you just think about me standing with uh, Shaquille O'Neal 
or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, if you remember him. I, I feel like a, probably look like a midget, right? But just imagine that we're going up to 20 story on the top of the 20 story looking down. Can you see the difference between Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Shikin O'Neill and me? Or when you think about God's perfect holiness and standard with spotless darkness, is cannot coexist with the light, is almost swimming to Hawaii. I'm a swimmer. I, I bet I could stay a lot longer than you guys, some of you guys. Except those who are much fitter than me. But <laughs> Can you tell the difference? Is there any difference? Everyone dies. No one can reach God. Short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person when, Whenever we read scripture, the natural person is it sounds like a more like a uh, artificially trying to make yourself look good person versus natural person. No, it doesn't mean that. The person without any Holy Spirit's touch, that person, natural person, does not accept things, accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Total pervasive depravity. Unless Father grants you the faith, you cannot come to me, Jesus said. How about the other side? Irresistible grace. I chose intentionally in John chapter 6 passages. Earlier, verse 37, Jesus says, All that Father gives me will come to me. Enabling of the Holy Spirit. His calling is effectual. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44 of John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. Praise be to God that we are as believers, as followers, who thought we have made a decision to follow Jesus. In reality, God has called us, enabled us, opened our eyes to the, see the light of the glory of gospel and Jesus that we have come to faith, that we have come to salvation. Lesson number three. Following Jesus faithfully without spiritual defection, in other words, requires a deliberate renunciation of all other alternatives and a confessional faith in Jesus and his word. Get verse 66. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the disciple, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have the word, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what, what's the cure? If you don't want to drop out, and if you don't, don't want to be a, a person who had a, this enthusiasm in leading ministries, and all of a sudden, I quit. The fickle person. I want to be consistent. I want to be, I want to be loyal to Jesus. I want to be faithful. I hate leap service. The cure is true faith. This is the time that we need to reevaluate. Have I really thought my faith was true and saving faith and real faith? Or is it like this passage, superficial that when that test comes, I will not survive? There are two tell telltale signs of true saving faith. Number one is renunciation of all other alternatives. This is utterly important because of pop psychology. Um, there's so many books out there, self-help books. Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil, uh, you, name, you name your favorite self-help books. New Age stuff. <clears throat> Of course I love Jesus. I love so-and-so, too. I, I love a lot of teachings of Gen, Zen Buddhist teaching. All truth is God's true. I'm not saying, you know, don't study it. But is it If Jesus' way doesn't work, if you become so disillusioned and leave the church, do you have an, an, another alternative? And I'm praying from the depth of my heart, that's the first word that Peter said, to whom shall I go, will be our rededication. Maybe some of you realize that I, maybe my faith is not real. May this be the first day that you declare, your, your declaration becomes renouncing all other alternatives in your life, including your own self figuring your life. To whom shall we go?
if you can't think of any alternatives, and if you don't become utterly broken down when Jesus, the way to Jesus is blocked, you're not a Christian. Second thing is a confessional faith. I don't mean verbal confessional thing, but it's more confession of the scriptural Jesus, the doctrinal scripture-guided faith. What does that look like? Simon, Simon Peter said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God in that context was very clear. Anointed One, the Messiah, the promised Savior. So in our language, we need to see that Jesus is not my helper. Jesus is useful. Rather than that kind of mentality, Jesus, you are my Lord, my Savior, In you and you alone my salvation belongs. Have you noticed this also to his languages? Process. We have come to know. We have believed. So this is not just the head knowledge, but experientially, he really believed. Come to embrace it emotionally. In all his heart. If you that have a real faith, no matter what happens to your life, you will not have spiritual defection. Have you renounced all other options and confessed Jesus as the one and only Savior and Lord whom God has sent? If not, do it today. I plead with you. If you have, confess it again. Come to the first love, the first realization of that. Humble yourself before God. Second Corinthians. 13.5, Apostle Paul admonishes us, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, this is really scary unless, indeed you fail to meet the test. Do you hear the challenge and charge? Realize who you belong to. Test yourself if you are in the faith, not in a faith, in the doctrinal, sound, scripture-guided faith. You should know Christ lives in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You should get your act together. Repent. And follow Christ as you mean it with all your heart. Clean up your acts. Confess your sins. Purify your motive. That's what 
the passage is saying. But the scare, more scary thing is, unless you fail the test, it is obvious why you're doing what you're doing. Lesson number four is this. Even when following Jesus feels like a defeat and or failure, Jesus is sovereignly in control as a victor of our faith and our lives. Verse 70. Jesus answered to answer them, the disciples, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Initially, I just glanced over this. But the more I think about, why is Jesus mentioning Judas Iscariot here? This is only chapter 6. The betrayal doesn't happen until chapter 12. Or even mention of it, it doesn't come up until then. I don't know how I could put this in a way that we, you and I will feel the devastation of this failure. Just imagine that. You're running a business, your little store, and all of a sudden, 99% of your customers quit because of misunderstanding. And they left. Okay, you're not a businessman. So think about your good friends, your life circle of friends. Many of them are here. But in that circle, except your immediate family, everybody left and deserting you. Now, do you feel? When Jesus was a rock star in the beginning of the chapter with this miracle, 5,000 men, 20,000 people were just roaring with a sound. Jesus! Jesus! Our King! Our King! And at the end of the chapter, everybody left. An utter failure, a defeat. The reason why I think that John, the writer of the gospel, mentions Judas Iscariot, Jesus mentioning that, remembering that, putting that, and the point is, in the midst of this defeat, seemingly utter failure, God is in control. Jesus is in control. And even in the dark Good Friday, 
when no one had any hope, God was in control. But at this moment, it just feels like, oh, Jesus, you need to know PR, public relations. You need to hire someone. This is not the way you, you treat your followers. You just chase them away with harsh language. Very difficult teaching. Even if it's true, you need to soften it up a little bit. You know why this was really kind of surprisingly encouraging to me? No, no, not like a rah, 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 we could do this. Go crossway, go Paul Kim kind of thing. But in a subtle, very gentle whispers of the Holy Spirit encouraging me. I'm struggling with our church not having stable stability of coming weeks. And then I hear my friends, pastor friends, doing so well. Like, I, I just feel like a failure. What's going on? When corporate church members left, their families, because of a lot of, I, I don't blame them. And on top of that, last Friday, something very disturbing happened to our, my family. I cannot even share that. And it was, I felt like the whole thing was dark. I was out of control. I was angry enough to say, like, what the heck is going on? And I remember this. In the midst of that seemingly dark picture, Jesus is reminding me that he's the victor. He hasn't lost a control of it. The paradox of the way of the cross will come with glory. And maybe this is the time that I will mention what I forget to mention, miss that, when Jesus was saying, are you, do you take offense this? And he says, what if you see son of man being ascending to where, into, into heaven, basically? And it's extremely powerful for me to understand. Initially, I, I thought it one understanding or the other. I need to choose one or between the two. So in other words, what if you, this is offense? You think this is offensive. Watch until Son of Man ascending. Then you will go, aha, everything makes sense now. Because he is really ascending to heaven. He came from the heaven. That's glorious comfort. That's one understanding. The other understanding is, you think this is offensive. When Jesus the Son of Man was being ascending to the heaven. The, the way that he ascended is, will be on the cross. So-called the Messiah, 
son of David, would be being would be being crucified on the on the tree as a cursed man. That would be the absurdity at the peak of it. Well, I realize that I don't have to choose between the two. As we have seen more and over in John's Gospel, John intentionally puts that in a way that double meaning is still possible. How does it apply to us? I think John Piper summarized this in a very powerful way. He writes, Whenever it appears in your life, that Jesus is not winning, whenever it seems as though he is not triumphing over your enemy, just at that point and at that time, you need a very robust and clear vision of God's sovereignty over you and the horrors of your life. So true. Sisters and brothers, I've seen many Christians, including my pastor friends, when something tragic, something disturbing, they feel used, they feel offended, that something happened to them. And that God left them alone and deserted faith. Many Christians, including the pastors, former pastors. I think the primary reason is that they didn't have a clear biblical picture of who Jesus is, who God is. God is in control in the midst of dark valley of shadow of death. You're stuck with your, your problems in your life. And you, you ha- you're facing with this pain in your life. Your loved one passed away. Your loved one is in cancer. Your finances is not doing well. Your, your children has a lot of problems. And your marriage is under rock. Listen to this. Real faith will come closer, closer to the bosom of the Father, trusting His sovereignty, sovereign care. Even if the sovereign care seems so severe to you, seems like utter failure to you. So I praise God where we are right now. My time's way over, so let me conclude with this thought. I want to gently encourage you to renew your commitment to follow Jesus. And may God enable us, refresh our commitment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that this message was recorded 
and the scripture that we might be challenged and be tested as well. And today, uh, we renew our, our faith and we examine our hearts. Teach us to stick to you with loyal, faithful hearts. We pray that you will continually give us joy in taking the way of the cross as our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.